Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. Hi, I'm Mike Pownell, and welcome to another episode of AAP Practice Life Podcast. So we have an interesting uh, uh, podcast today. When I was at the AAP convention uh, earlier this month in Denver, I was fortunate enough to be the moderator for a session on the business program, and two of the presenters who are with me uh, today, uh, Mary Kovac and Robin Ellerbrock, did outstanding presentations on debt and student debt. And I was listening to it and my jaw dropped. I was heartbroken by some of the stories and some of the comments from people in the crowd. And I thought, we need to talk about this. This is such an important part of our profession. And it really impacts uh, the equine part of our profession profoundly. And then we've also invited uh, Dr. Tony Bartels from the Veterinary Information Network, Vin who's in, well, I'll let him introduce himself in terms of the role he has with that. But uh, Mary, let's start with you. Uh, Introduce yourself, tell everybody what what your story is and uh, why you decided to talk about student debt. So I, uh, Dr. Mary Kovac, and I um, am a a equine practitioner at heart, although never did any equine practice. I ended up in small animal where I was miserable and, and kind of fell into the job I'm in right now, which is uh, with lap of love, so I do veterinary euthanasia in home hospice care, and I love my job. Clearly, not where I envisioned myself when I started vet school. I I'm here, and I ended up at AEP just simply because I I didn't feel like the right data was out there, and there are a lot of misconceptions and myths, and I I kind of set out to prove some people wrong, and I don't know if I did or not, but I hope at least people are starting to listen and and really realize this is not just a one school or one student issue. This is this is bigger than that. Excellent. And uh, Robin Ellerbrock, uh, welcome and introduce yourself. Let us know about you. I am currently for the last year and a half or approaching two years, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Georgia. I graduated in 2012 from Cornell and did an equine internship followed by a residency in theriogenology and then because I'm a glutton for punishment, also a PhD <laughs> during that time, and then moved from there to the University of Georgia. And I got interested in this partly because I, I know my situation is a little different than others and how I focused on repaying my loans. But I, you know, I interact with students on a daily basis, and I've watched all of my classmates of 2012 that were equine-oriented leave equine practice. And as I try and, you know, realize that no one at school talked to me about debt. <laughs> I try and do so more with my students um, and got very interested in the conversation of what it actually means to be an equine practitioner now, a new equine practitioner and how you can afford it. Thank you. And and Tony, uh, you're a new to me as well, but uh, tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you're doing with Vin. Uh, yeah, sounds good. I, I'm, uh, I came to veterinary medicine as a second career by way of uh, engineering and, and corporate finance. So um, I, I kind of thought I was doing all the all the right things to keep my student debt as low as possible. 
Um, but then I, I graduated from the CSU combined MBA DVM program in 2012. I thought I would kind of go on to small animal practice and ownership and the student debt thing kind of blindsided me. I also married a veterinarian and she's a small animal internist. Um, and she brought more debt to the table than I accrued myself. So together we have more than $400,000 of, of student debt. And the overwhelming majority of that is from veterinary school. Uh, so I became pretty passionate about um, how to help myself and, and our colleagues understand student loans and, and their repayment options. Um, I found Paul Pion along the way there, the co-founder and CEO of VIN, um, and he was trying to figure out some answers to the student debt problem. So we put our heads together and, and uh, built a lot of the tools that are available now on vinfoundation.org uh, that people can use built primarily for veterinarians to help them understand their student loans and repayment options. Excellent. Well, thank you. So Mary, I'm just going to come back to you because I know um, your presentation, a lot of it, the information was based on some of a, a pretty good numbers from, you know, just Facebook polling. And uh, maybe you just give us a brief synopsis of, you know, how you collected the data and what were some of the highlights that, what, that you know, captured your attention. So I pulled three different uh, Facebook groups that are vets only. So I, I felt pretty comfortable just kind of throwing the information out there and, and hoping that people would respond. And I was overwhelmed by the people that responded. So uh, different groups, but I would say I, I collected on average around a thousand data points. Uh, the questions I asked were, what was your debt when you graduated? Uh, with a caveat of, I just want your, your DVM debt. Um, what is your interest rate? What's your debt now? Where did you go? And it was definitely a, a good mix of in-state versus out-of-state and uh, in-state that or out-of-state that became in-state and for-profit schools. I had some some Canadians who threw threw in the mix, and I ended up excluding them because your student programs up there are amazing, <laughs> and I felt like wasn't really a fair comparison be- between the two. But overall, it was it was eye opening that this is a, a nationwide issue. As far as you know, specific data points, it was interesting to watch. We when we graphed it out, um, which is is published in the AAP proceedings, you can see the graphs. But you know, in the beginning, when you start looking, we I think the earliest grad I had was eighty or eighty one. You start looking at the graphs, and they're all going down, you know, what's your graduating debt, what's your debt today, and, and most of those early grads have paid off. And the graphs right around 2010 to 2011 are, are pretty flatline, you know, and that's nine years ago. There should be some progress made on those up to the, the grads that have recently graduated. Those those graphs are going up, you know, they, they owe more now than they, when they graduated, which Tony and I discussed at length and he said he's, he's happy with that, which caught me off guard. And, and I'll let him kind of go through that. But he says that means that he expects that to be happening. But for me, I don't like seeing my number increase. And I, I know for most grads, they don't want to see their number increase. It's kind of defeating for sure. And so, uh, were there any, you know, like, you know, we had talked just before we started recording of in terms of what are the average in-state versus out-of-state yeah, so, and foreign school debt? Well, so like in the 1990s, the average in-state was 50000 out-of-state 123000 Um At that point, there weren't any, that group, there aren't any for-profit answers. Go to the 2000s, in-state has doubled to 97,000. And these are the grad, the debts at graduation, not, not debt today. Out of state had went up to a hundred and looks like 168,000 for profit, 
24,000. So pretty, a pretty significant jump. In the 2010s, average in-state debt was 159,000, out-of-state 252,000. So $100,000 difference to go out-of-state. Wow. For profit, though, 301,000. So that's, I mean, honestly, it's heartbreaking when you see that number double, literally double from in-state to, to for-profit schools. Right. And I know, Robin, you, you know, graduated with, with a sizable amount of debt. And I know you talked about uh, some of the mechanisms to pay yours off and what some other people are doing to pay off their debt. I was wondering if you had some comments or thoughts on what, how you, what you presented. Yeah. So I basically piggybacked on some of the data that Mary had collected and we, we went through and looked at people who said they were paying off their debt. And a lot of those people, as Mary alluded to, were um, veterinarians who graduated pre-2010 with a lot less debt. There are some people that have graduated since 2010 that are paying down their debt. And when we looked at the factors that were allowing them to do that, um, a lot of them, unfortunately, are things that are beyond, beyond individual control, but factors such as, well, in-state tuition obviously made a difference, their decision on where they went to school, but also um, inheritance. A lot of people said they'd inherited money and used that to pay down some of their debt. Or the other big factor is spousal income. So basically to be an equine veterinarian, a recent graduate, and make progress on their debt, their spouse was paying all living expenses. And basically their whole salary a lot of times was going to pay down the debt. And other factors would be second jobs, third jobs, whether they're working small animal on the side or working, you know, as an equine drug tester for USEF or at the racetrack. And then obviously, everyone wants the answer to be, you just live frugally, and that'll do it. <laughs> obviously, that will help make a difference, help you enable you to make second and third payments. But that alone was never the sole answer to how people were managing to pay off their debt. Yeah, when you have debts of the, some of the numbers that Mary brought up, I mean, there's there's frugal and then there's like frugal. And I don't know how frugal you could live to pay off some of those debt amounts over a lifetime. You know, I've talked to, basically, I went back, I've talked to the majority of my classmates and a lot of students that I had at Illinois since then. And, you know, basically straight up asked them where they are in their loans. Are they paying them off? Or are they not? For some, it's it's um you 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 literally can't make enough money to pay off your student loans, right? right? So if you are, if you are at some of the higher ends of the spectrum, you may not even take home uh, as much money as your monthly student loan payment would be if you were trying to pay it off in say ten years, right? The the default repayment option with U.S. federal student loans. So you know the living frugal thing, it, like you said, only goes so far, right? I mean, when your monthly student loan payment can actually be more than what you're taking home. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. And that's, I, I remember the other part that I was going to say to this. I've been talking to former classmates, talking to people about, you know, how they have or haven't paid off their debt and commenting, you know, on different lifestyle choices in vet school, post vet school. And my one friend just this morning was pointing out, like, let's say the difference in frugal housing in a year in vet school is, you know, $7,000 difference per year. So maybe a difference in $20,000 over the life of vet school. That's not <laughs> the increase in loans. That's, that's, just, that's actually on, honestly a small part of your yeah. total loan. 
that alone isn't going to make a difference. <laughs> Mike, you, you mentioned, I think it might have been before we started recording, that um, there's some perception that that some of the students at, at during vet school are, are kind of living high on the hog. I have so many vets that come to me and I've presented on this and they just say, well, back in my day, we I worked full time and I live frigally and those kids today, they just, they're just not responsible. Yeah. And so, I mean, the reality is uh, you're limited to the amount of student loans that you can you can take. And the average is about, I would say, $20,000 a year is what you're allowed to live to, to borrow in living expenses, right? Everything that kind of goes above and beyond your tuition. So uh, $20,000 a year in the US pretty much anywhere is not living high on the hog by any stretch of the imagination, right? And, and many of the students that I meet and talk with are doing better than that, right? They're living on uh, about $1,000 a month, right? So, but again, and, and like Robin was saying, there's only so much blood you can squeeze from that stone, right? So at some point you have to be able to cover your living expenses and you know the amount that they're able to affect when it comes to their student loans is very small in the grand scheme of, in the grand scheme of things. Most of the dollars are going to, to tuition. Just to clarify, so everybody's on the same page, when we're talking that people's loans are getting bigger, even if they're paying off as much as they can a year, it, are we just talking about the effect of compound interest? Because I know, you know, Mary had talked about that uh, interest rates 10, 15 years ago were about half of what they are now. Is that a big part of the contributing factor to the never getting ahead I was like, Tony, you had some Absolutely great, great thoughts opinion. on this, definitely. But in my in my data, the in the 2000s, the average interest rate was like 3.7%. And for the 2010s, that had rose to 6.6%. And, and some of mine are as high as 11%. I, I think, as Tony said yesterday, when we or a couple of days ago when we talked, and I'll, I'll kind of let him elaborate, but it was essentially, you know, when it's $300,000, does it really matter if it's 3% or 6%? Because... Are you really going to be able to touch it? The first clarification is that the student loan interest doesn't technically compound, right? So the interest rate is is a, is a problem, right? But at the same time, you know, we're we're providing loans to people with little or no credit history and their unsecured loans, right? So in the grand scheme of things, if you were going to try to walk into a bank and ask them for three hundred thousand dollars with zero credit history, at five to six percent, they would pretty much laugh you out of the lobby, right? So in that context, the interest rates are actually fairly reasonable. Now, I would love them to be lower. Uh, they have come down. They're tied to the 10-year U- U.S. Treasury. And, and because we're in one of the lowest interest rate environments that we've ever been in in this country, the interest rates have come down, right? So the interest rates for student loans next year will likely be around five and a half percent for veterinary students who are borrowing. Uh, depending on what happens between now and May. Uh, but the interest doesn't compound while you're in school. When you exit school, the interest that you accrued will get added to your principal. And then depending on how you choose to pay your loans back afterwards, the interest should not get added to the principal after that. Right. So I know there there is a lot of uh, thought that the, the interest rates compound on student loans. It shouldn't. Right? There are instances that can trigger certain capitalization events, but it does not compound like we think of, you know, like credit card debt or any kind of other monthly debt that you might carry. I want to come back to something that Mary brought up earlier in terms of the amount of debt is, is rising, and, and I'm probably not describing it well. And, and Tony, you said that you like that or that was a good thing. So maybe you can expand on that. 
Yeah, so a, a lot of us that, um, particularly for those of us whose whose income is not greater than our student debt balance, which which is a majority of veterinarians um, as they're getting started, there are a series of what are called income-driven repayment options. And as the name implies, you make payments based on your income, right? So it, it really detaches whatever you borrowed from the payment that you're making, right? So now your payment is a function of your income. And oftentimes, based on the formula, the payment that is generated on your income doesn't even cover the interest that accrues. So in those cases, you will have a student loan balance that will increase over time, right? And I know it drives people crazy. It drives me crazy, right? I mean, I have a student ba- student loan balance that's that's increasing right now. But the way these plans work is you continue to make payments based on your income for a certain number of years, and whatever's left at the end gets forgiven, and you pay the taxable fraction of what's left. And what would that tax that rate be? Because I remember hearing about that, but what? How how big is a rate is that? It depends on what the um, the federal income tax rates are at the time, and if you live in a state that also has income tax, it'll be determined by what your marginal income tax bracket is. So uh, the way I understand it, whatever is forgiven is basically considered income for the year, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. So I think, Robin, you are talking about that you would say, you know, you talked about that, but you're like, at the same time as you're trying to pay down your debt, you should be also saving money to pay that tax penalty that will happen. Yes. And so that's basically the advice that everyone that I've talked to that is using that plan has gotten. Um, And I think the advice that's hard to get when you're watching your pennies early on in practice, it's hard to think about also saving for for that. But I guess the other, based on what Tony had said, you know, what plan is best for you and what you should be doing during that time, it's very difficult to navigate as a veterinarian starting out and definitely not something that anyone helps you navigate. And it's very nice to see things like the VIN calculator. I actually learned a lot preparing for my presentation at AAP, going back and looking at all these resources that weren't available five years ago. And thinking maybe I actually would have done some things differently <laughs> had I known. And something else that was interesting too during Mary's talk, we had a really great uh, Q and A with the audience, and somebody asked, "Well, why don't you just refinance your debt?" And then <laughs> you're laughing, so I'll let you speak on that, Mary, because I think you you dealt with that quite well. I don't actually know if he was just sleeping through the talk or if he just he heard the topic, and that's been his answer all along for every grad is just just refinance. But if I refinance, I'm lose my ability to do anything IBR. And when I graduated and my very first letter from Sally Mae came in, it said, hey, your first payment will be due on the state. It'll be $4,500. And my debt has doubled since then. So I can't imagine what my monthly payment would be if I lost my IBR now. I I guess I could be wrong. But as far as I know, if I refinance, I I can't use IBR anymore. And Tony, I'll kind of deflect you again for that. But I I didn't feel like that that was a, a solid answer. Yeah, I have I have battled the refinance comment for since I've started doing this, and unfortunately, it's it's kind of it, you know it it just shows kind of a lack of understanding of the entire situation. And because even if you were to refinance a high in, a high balance student loan like we see in veterinary medicine, uh, it's most likely that that payment that monthly payment for that individual is going to go up. And, and that's because even if you lower the interest rate, you have such a high amount, um, usually the, the private lenders are not going to let you refinance this over a very long period of time. Some of the longest periods I've seen are maybe 15 years. Most of the options you have, income-driven repayment or, or in the other federal student loan repayment plans, 
let you stretch out those payments much longer than that, which is what helps to keep those monthly payments manageable. So while you might get a lower interest rate, your monthly payment will probably go up. And if you couldn't meet the monthly payment before, that's not going to help anything. So I think that what we do see too, uh, when you compare private loan refinance options against income-driven repayment when we run veterinary situations through there, is that you end up with a lower effective interest rate than any refinancing company can offer you while still maintaining the flexibility that income-driven repayment provides, which is, which is what Mary was alluding to, right? Once you, once you take your loans out of the federal system and refinance them, you can't go back, right? So you can never get that flexibility that you have that's baked into your, your federal student loans. So I'm going to take a step back. So, um, and I think, you know, you, the three of you are close enough to school and Robin, you're, you're assistant professor now of Let's go back to the root of it. So, you know, we hear a lot of people saying, well, the students should know about it. And it's their own fault for getting into debt because, you know, if they were aware and if they knew what was going on, they could they could live better. So mm-hmm. let's go back to, you know, before you get into vet school, like how how aware are students of this challenge and what are universities doing to help them become aware of this? Maybe, Robin, you can talk about that. Yeah, I was going to say, I definitely think that, the answer for students entering vet school now is very different than the answer from when Tony and Mary and I started. We were starting right around the time where interest rates were still very low. And to me, it was going to be similar to undergrad. And I was pretty much unprepared for what the interest rates were going to be on my loans in vet school. That's part of it. Um, And probably not aware enough at the time about salary. I think that um, in the last 10 years, Well, probably in the last five years or so, schools have realized that there is this issue and have taken steps to try and help prepare students better during school. And I have to say, I think UGA was one of the first, if not the first, to actually provide free financial counseling to students while they're in school, um, which was not something that was even mentioned when I was in vet school 10 years ago. And then there are other factors that students, you know, might not have you know, the tuition can increase while you're in vet school. So tuition, your first year of vet school might increase by the time you're fourth year. And a lot of this for state schools can be, it's out of the vet school's control. You know, the university or the university system sets the tuition for all programs and not really within the vet school's control to control that. But I do think, hopefully, and continuing to talk about student debt and veterinary debt, hopefully students that are starting school now are much more aware than they were when the, when the three of us started. <laughs> And so once we're in school, what kind of advice are you going to give to a student who is, all right, I'm in school and I'm, I'm, I have this tuition, I have these living expenses, you know, how can a student minimize their debt? I'm not going to eliminate it, but how can they minimize it? <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Part of it obviously will be lifestyle choices, the choice to live alone versus living with other students can affect things like, you know, your personal living expenses and rent. We like to say that getting a job on the side is an option. And I will say about 50% of my classmates in vet school did work side jobs. A lot of us worked within the vet school. But, you know, and if you listen to older practitioners, they say they worked throughout vet school, which I did. I had a job all four years of vet school. I was a technician in the large animal hospital and I worked at the barn where I kept my horse every every week. But when you look go back and look at that cost, that's yeah, yeah. it's a drop in a very big bucket. Yeah, maybe five hundred to seven hundred and fifty dollars a month that went not far at all. You know, I paid my rent a lot of the time out of that and nothing else. <laughs> um, 
but that it can certainly help if we're you know if we're talking about minimizing expenses things like that can help and i know some of my students at uga do work or do things as drastic as sell their plasma <laughs> see there's something wrong with the system when a, a, a student has to sell their plasma to make ends meet <laughs> I, I legitimately had two students on clinics with me last year who told me they donated plasma every two months when they were, whenever, you know, whatever the limit is for how frequently you can donate. The kicker to that is if the, even if, however they choose to make money on the side is still making better student loan decisions. And the two are often disconnected, right? I meet some of the most frugal people that I talk to in vet school that still end up with a lot more in student loans because they didn't know what to do with the extra money that they were offered, even though, because they were so frugal about how they were living. Right. And we do, I do a whole mm -hmm. lecture. So I talk to a lot of veterinary students, a lot of veterinary schools, and we have uh, through VIN foundation, we have a whole series of apply smarter, which, which addresses pre-vets uh, borrow better, which addresses this exact subject and then a repay mm -hmm. wiser. So in the borrow better thing, what I really try to get them to do is focus on borrowing only what they need because the system is set up to offer you the maximum right? The maximum that you can take. And, you, and most of them are very good at being frugal, but they're still offered the maximum. So if you're, if you're frugal, you may still end up with the, the yeah. maximum amount of student loans at the end because you didn't know how to return them, right? And that's what I talked to them about is being able to return their student loans. They have 120 days from when they receive them, that if they return them, they actually return the interest and the fees with it, right? So if they have if they're donating their plasma, right, then they can reduce the amount that they're offered in student loans by that equivalent amount, and that will help them end up with less student loans. I haven't heard this before, so this almost sounds like, you know, people investing in private equity into internet companies like, here, take all this money. So you're, you're literally saying that, you know, hey, I need 10000 and the financing institute is like, but here's twenty. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably exaggerating it, but that's what goes exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's because they, you know, the, the, the estimate what you're offered is based on the cost of attendance and the school publishes that. And the cost of attendance is determined by the tuition and fees, right? The amount the school gets, right? But the living expense part, the part that they actually have some effect over is an estimate. So that's where it's important to take your budget, what it actually costs you to live and then determine how much you need based on that, not based on yeah, what Because when somebody's offering you free you money, need. well, saying that with quotation marks, free money, but if you need 10 and somebody gives you 15 or 20, yep. you're you're going to probably use that extra five or $10,000. I mean, that's just human nature. Exactly. Yeah. One, absolutely. And once you have it, it's <laughs> unlikely that you're, you're, you're going to give it back, right? But so, or, and you're probably going to spend it. So if you can be diligent about budgeting and then returning it or reducing the award when it's offered to you each year, that's the best way to do it. But they do still have that 120 days where they can return it and it'll return the interest that's associated with that amount. I'm kind of <laughs> shocked. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of lost of words right now. It's almost like a crack dealer of like, here, take this. We want you hooked on this because the, you know, they're in the business of making money and that interest rate that's you know and on one hand we say that they're they're high risk people because they don't have credit and yet at the same time where they seem quite willing to lend them more than they need well that's a phenomenon unique to graduate school right and and that's one of the reasons why we've seen graduate school prices go up so so much is because there really is no limit to the amount that you can borrow from for a graduate school it's only it's set by the institution yeah. which which is a whole different conversation but the um 
the other mistake that I see students commonly make when it comes to their student loans is trying to pay the interest while they're in school. Right? It is, and the loan servicers are really the big culprit here. Is they're always sending them emails saying, "Hey, have you thought about paying towards your student loan interest?" If you have the funds to make interest payments during school, it's better to mm-hmm. actually reduce the amount that you borrow because that that dollar towards the principal right. goes farther than the dollar towards the interest. So stop paying the interest right. while you're in school and borrow less. And that's very interesting to hear because that's not the advice yeah. we got <laughs> while we were in debt school. It was to pay the interest. I mean, but we also, it, they were pretty hard on us, I think, in terms of the total amount we could borrow. It seemed at the time like it would barely cover your expenses, at least for more I went in terms of how much they were willing to loan us. But definitely, it's, <laughs> it's funny that we definitely, you know, the advice you did get in school might not have been the best advice. <laughs> so let's switch over to, okay, you, you, you've graduated, um, you know, and I'm going to turn over to you, Mary, just because I think your situation is very common. So I'm just going to step back. And the previous podcast that we did with the AAP Practice Life was with Dr. Amy Grice, and she was on the AAP subcommittee um, that did the AVMA AAP economic study. And so some of the things that, you know, we talked about was the lower salary with equine vets in the first few years compared to companion animal, the fact that more equine grads go into internships. So the very first year, you're definitely getting paid less. And it seems that um, the other factor is there was about an $18,000 gap between starting salaries post-internships between men and women. And when our profession is predominantly female, that means the the bulk of the vets that are coming out are getting paid less on top of, so you're getting paid less and going into equine, and then you're going getting paid less because you're female. So there's two huge obstacles to the new grad with a huge amount of debt going into equine practice. Maybe if you have some comments on that, Mary. I, I tell my husband all the time, I feel like a sellout because I mean, I went to vet school. All I wanted was large animal. I did not want to do dogs and cats. Um, and that's all I've done, you know, since I left, I, my first job was offered to me as a, a mixed practice job, but I got started and I got told if I wanted to work on large animals, I'd be doing it on my day off. So it was offered, but I clearly wasn't going to follow through with that. My, data that I collected, I specifically asked. Now, I didn't ask anything about salaries. I just didn't have the energy to deal with debt versus salaries with that many people. But I I asked the question of if you wanted to be equine when you started vet school, are you equine now? And if you are, have you thought about leaving? Did you leave? And the, the scary number is that there was about 54% that said, that they left, they never pursued, or or they considered leaving this practice uh, due to factors outside of student loan debt. That means forty five percent of people said student loan debt is the sole reason I left, or I, or I, I never went into it. And I, you know, I'm in that forty five percent. I just, I just didn't. I didn't know how I could find an equine job that was going to pay. Looking back it really didn't matter because the small animal job also didn't cover it. But, you know, at the time I decided I'm going to take this higher paying job and it was significantly higher. I agree with Mary a hundred percent there in terms of, I was thinking about this a while back 
about the 12 of us when I was graduating, the 12 of us that went in to do equine internships. And, you know, everyone says people are leaving equine practice because no one wants to be on call 24-7. And maybe that's the second reason. But every single person I know that left equine practice was they wanted the higher salary and small animal to pay towards their loans. Every single one of them, it was financial. It wasn't it wasn't the on-call or the work-life balance. I think when you when you grow up wanting to be an equine vet, you spend time, like I did, with an equine vet. You know what the lifestyle is like. That's not a surprise to you. You know you're going to be on call. You know it's physical labor. You know you're going to be out in the cold and the snow and the rain. And not every barn is a million-dollar barn with heat and fancy lights. I don't I, I just I never believed that that was really the big cause people are leaving because they're they're lazy and they don't want this physical labor. It, you know, the numbers are out there in this group. It's forty five percent said student debt is the only reason that I've left. I never pursued it or that I'm greatly considering leaving. Could I ask the, th- the three of you? Because I, I I am not I I am not an equine. I would, I would ask too, because I, and, and this is, this is kind of what I, I try to do is I try to help to show people that your student debt doesn't have to be a barrier, right? So if we can remove the barrier of your student debt, do you think that people would still leave equine medicine because they see that they can earn more somewhere else? No, no, because if I would have really realized that it doesn't matter how much you make, your debt's going to be over your head for the next 25 years. I literally was two weeks away from walking away from veterinary medicine entirely because if I can't do large animal, I don't even want to be here. That's why I say this current job saved me. I love my job. I know it's weird to say that about a, a hospice euthanasia job. The people I meet are amazing. It I, Every day I'm rewarded in such awesome ways, but no, I, it, I walked away because of the money and it, it making an extra 25,000 a year and any other situation wouldn't have mattered to me. So that's something that's interesting, Tony, if maybe you can expand on that. You said, you know, if, if debt is not a barrier, so maybe we can talk about that because I think, you know, if there's students listening to this and they're like, Oh gosh, why did I go down equine stream? You know, can we talk about how does a student who graduates make it worthwhile? How can they stay in equine practice? Yeah, and that's where I think the the income driven repayment options can work, but you you do have to kind of train your brain to be okay with carrying the debt with you through that career choice, right? And and but you can make it work, right? So you, as the the income driven repayments uh, or the plans allow, you pay towards your student loans a percentage of your income, right? So it really doesn't matter at the end of the day how much you're earning. Um, as long as you can keep making those payments and figure out some way of, of navigating the tax at the end. And I think a lot of people, it's that last part that really, that in, in combination with watching their loan balance grow is that that tax can be such an unknown that um, it doesn't seem doable. But what we do with the tools that we have available is kind of show them, try to estimate, well, what do you think that, ta- you know, based on what your income is going to be, we can show you what we think that estimated tax will be. And we work our way back and try to make that a monthly estimate to try to get to in that 25 year period. Quick question on that. I just want to, I'm, I'm curious because some people say that, and, and I was a believer of this and some of the information you're sharing tonight may, may change my opinion. And that is, 
you know, probably some of the easiest way to, I'm not going to say easy, effective way of paying back your loan is actually practice ownership. So actually pile on even more debt to become an owner, but yet the returns from being an owner will give you a greater income that will allow you to pay back your debt quicker. Is that true or is that just a pipe dream of people trying to get people into ownership? No, I think that's absolutely true as well, right? And and again, that's another one of those instances where um, if you can rethink how you approach your student debt, if you use income-driven repayment, you can actually achieve practice ownership easier. So would, would dividends from being an owner uh, offset your, uh, your income-based uh, repayment? Well, they, they would add to your income, which would increase your payment, but it's still a percentage of your overall income. Gotcha. Right? So earning more is not a problem, right? Right, because you're still making a payment, a percentage, based on what you're earning. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. And I think I interrupted Robin. Sorry, Robin. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it. honestly, looking back on it, I wish I'd had the VIN calculator <laughs> 10 years ago when I made my decisions about how I was going to repay my debt. I have, I guess, the personality type that I don't know. I don't think I could, you know, even if the income base was the best and watch your income. I don't, I mean, it's depressing that you have to spend your whole adult working life then. If you want to be a veterinarian, a equine veterinarian to watch your debt accumulate over 25 years just to pay it off. And my question for Tony was basically going to be, I guess I'm paranoid. I didn't believe that, <laughs> you know, my, income, my debt would really be repaid in 25 years. And, you know, what's, what happens then if it's not <laughs> repaid in 25 years? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, and that is a common concern from folks is that, you know, how can I, how can I uh, rely that this is going to work out um, as it's written? And that's, you know, that's one of the good things though, is it, it is written, right? It's, it's written into the master promissory yeah. note, the contract that you signed when you took the student loans out. Um, and also, you know, we see too, when we follow the legislation that comes out of Congress um, that they, they, nobody, um, presents changing it for folks who are already in repayment. What they talk about doing is changing the system for folks who haven't started borrowing yet, which means that those folks behind us would have a whole different mm-hmm. repayment set of rules, right? So um, that that is some pretty encouraging evidence, right? And, and basically ju- just watching the evolution of the different plans that have, have taken shape, um, that's exactly how it's happened, right? They've never taken anything away. Um, and while we haven't really seen student debt forgiveness happen in any appreciable number, and we won't until 2032, um, it, it is written, right? It is contractually obligated. So they would have to actually break all of those contracts if they were to change it um, for the folks who are already have student loans. So um, out of this, I'm getting actually a bit of optimism. You know, <laughs> that's easy for me to say coming from Canada where I graduated, I don't even want to say how little debt I had. <laughs> but in terms of what we've been talking about, so income-based repayment plans, but also, and I think, you know, one of the challenges is, well, you know, there's fewer people going to equine practice. 1.1% of graduating students from AVMA accredited colleges are going to equine as of 2019. So that's like about 50 people. And if income is, you know, the the, the salaries, the starting salaries are a factor. So there is the, the income-based um, repayment. But also practice ownership if you have the, you know, the, the, cone, the, 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 the stomach, the intestinal fortitude to add more debt is actually a very effective way to pay down your debt. And then another part of the optimism, I would say I was talking to two former students today who are still in equine practice about their debt. And both of them said within the last 
three months, they've had their practice managers have brought in financial advisors, people like Tony, to talk to them about their debt. So I think the more maybe the more I don't want to say more progressive, but some equine practices that are out there are taking note, realizing this is a big challenge to newer graduates and are actually starting to try and address it to retain students in practice. And both of those students said that was a one of the best things they think the practice had done for them up to this point. Yeah, and I think it was you, Mary, who brought that up, who asked people who had had access to financial advisors. And I think it was like, you can count it on one hand, on but one the hand. ones that would, the ones that would value it was like both arms up. And I think as practice owners, that's something that you could really do to help keep your new grad in the program that you have there. I agree. And I, I haven't changed that overall mindset at all. I'll repeat you know, what I said in the talk, which is I don't have one because I have no idea who to trust, who knows about IBRs and, and veterinary debt. It, it's kind of its own little group here. Um, and then when I was talking to Tony on the phone, he, he kind of echoed that concern, which is lots of financial advisors call him often and say, I want to you know, be on a list to you for you to, to give vet students. And uh, his, his take on it is they're not all trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And that, I, I mean, there's, there is kind of um, a double-edged sword there. I do think it's uh, great that, and I get more and more calls too from practices that are trying to figure out how best to help their associates and, and attract new ones and, and retain the ones that they have. Um, and they're, they're asking questions about how can I help them with their student debt, but that that's great. Right. And then there's more and more financial advisors because they're getting more and more questions. There, you know, the other side of that coin is that sometimes at least a lot of the financial advisors that I come across um, do not have the knowledge of dealing with debt-to-income ratios like we see in veterinary medicine, right? So they mm-hmm. tend to kind of uh, speed through the student debt stuff because they don't have the understanding of the income-driven repayment plans and they move on to the stuff that they do know, right? Which, you know, may be something that that associate needs as well, but it doesn't necessarily help them with their student loans, right? So that, there is a caution there in terms of the the quality of advice that we can currently get from financial advisors out there. But I am optimistic that it's improving, but it's going to take some take some more time. Tony, it sounds like um, you have. I mean, you're the the go to person, but there's only you. <laughs> um, but I know this sounds like there's some great tools. So maybe you can just repeat again the 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 web address for people to access some of these VIN tools. Yeah, so we, uh, they're all freely available at vinfoundation.org forward slash my student loans or student debt center. Those are where the uh, my student loans loan repayment simulator and there's even an in school estimator tool there uh, that that folks can use to get a handle on what they currently have their student loans, um, estimate whatever their costs they might be for the rest of veterinary school. And then when they get into repayment, there's a repayment simulator that they can use to project the different repayment options and compare them for their situation. So all of those options are available for free. You don't have to be a VIN member to use those. Um, They're at vinfoundation.org. I'd like to thank all three of you uh, for participating for this recording, but I also want to particularly thank Mary and Robin just because uh, my eyes were opened, and I know you've opened up a lot of eyes in the audience. And, and Mary, you know, you you may not be an equine practice, but boy, you gave a great assist to the profession. So thank you very much, thank and you. thank you all for your insights. And uh, I'm actually I'm I'm feeling better after this. You know, <laughs> I was starting this going this this could be depressing. This could be a but I'm walking out of this or leaving this with a bit of a smile on my face and seeing that there are opportunities there. So thank you all very much. I appreciate it.
For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.